So take your Bible, go to the Gospel of John with me if we can, and uh, John chapter number 7. Yeah, my family is here, my wife Lexa is in the back middle, and, uh, and then uh, our three boys, Mason is uh, six, almost seven, Logan is four, and Jude is ten months, and so we uh, travel together in our big white van out there, and, uh, and um, yeah, we came from a singles retreat in Michigan, and we came down here last night, and my son Mason, he's six, and uh, I don't think I saw him the whole weekend. He was, he was playing putt-putt golf, he was playing laser tag, and uh, I was looking for him on Friday night, and I found him, he was playing laser tag, and I was like, bro, it's time for bed, and he's like, I'm playing laser tag, I'm like, it's midnight, it's time for bed. <laughs> And uh, then I get him to the room, and uh, uh, he's like, uh, Dad, I haven't eaten anything all day. I am so hungry. I'm like, you've, yeah, because you've been playing laser tag all day. And so anyways, uh, he didn't eat anything this weekend, and so then he slept. From the moment we got in the car last night at like 6 till the time we got here, he was asleep. And so um, they've made it. We're here. And um, yes. So anyways, but it's good to be here and uh, always enjoy coming to the Quad Cities. Uh, John chapter 7, look at verse number 1 if you could, and we'll just read a couple of verses here at the beginning and then a couple of verses towards the end of this chapter as well. It says, after these things, Jesus walked not in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, that is uh, that of Judea, the, the region near Jerusalem, because the Jews, mean the Jewish leaders, they sought to kill him. So it's kind of important right off the bat, what it says after these things, he's talking about the events in John chapter 6. So after what happened in John 6, this is Jesus' choice now that he's not, he's only going to walk in Galilee, he's choosing not to go towards Jerusalem anymore. And uh, John 6, he feeds the 5,000 and then he has this teaching that he is the bread of life and uh, it confuses some of the people that are following him and eventually in verse 66 of John 6, it says that from that time many of his disciples went back they walked no more with him and so this is kind of a testy time in Jesus' ministry the, the the honeymoon phase is over the crowds are kind of dropping down they're, they're, they're dwindling and now in chapter 7 he's going to get more conflict verse 2 tells us now the jews feast of tabernacles was at hand and his brethren therefore said unto him Depart hence, go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. So his, his brethren are trying to get him to go down to Jerusalem for this feast to proclaim himself to be who he says he is, to, to make a big scene. And in verse number five, it says, for neither did his brethren believe in him. So again, this is a, a testy point. For Jesus, in verse 6, Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not yet up unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. Verse 9, when he has said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. Okay, look at verse 10. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now look at verse number 14. It says, now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. 
Okay, now look at verse number 37. Okay, so we're jumping ahead. Verse 37. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Okay, so just so we make sure we're kind of all on the same page here, the chapter starts with Jesus saying, I'm not going down to Jerusalem anymore. And uh, his brethren are kind of begging him to go because there's this feast going on. And he says, I'm not going up. You go up alone. And then right after they all go up, he goes, now I'm going up. Okay, so then now he's going to this feast, but he's doing so privately. He's, he's concealing his identity somehow uh, so that no one can recognize him. But then verse 15 tells us that during the midst of this feast, so kind of the middle of the feast, he starts to teach. And then verse 37 says that at the end of the feast, the last and great day of the feast, he stands up and he kind of publicly cries out. Okay, so John is very much so specifically painting the setting of John chapter 7 in and around this feast of tabernacles of the Jews. And the elephant in the room is, we don't know what that is, right? Like, we have no clue what the feast of tabernacles is other than it's in the Bible, right? Like, like I, I know it's somewhere, it has some sort of importance, but, but, but and we kind of think, well, John's given us all the details he needs to, and he definitely has, but this is not a minor detail he is giving us. Uh, this feast is the setting for the scene. And I've discovered that if we do not understand the Feast of the Tabernacles as Jesus understood it, and as John understood it, and as his audience would have understood it, then we miss out on some of the things that John is just assuming that we know. Because, well, we all know the Feast of the Tabernacles, because we celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so the Feast of the Tabernacles is actually in the Bible, okay, it's in what we call the Old Testament, the first three quarters of our Bible, you know, that part that no one ever goes to, right? And so we got to go to Leviticus, that wonderful book you all stopped at at the new year, you know, when you're like, I'm going to read through my Bible this year. And then you got to Leviticus, and you're like, I'm not going to read through my Bible this year, right? And so go to Leviticus chapter number 23. Now, this is not going to be on the screens. What we are going to throw up on the screens, though, hopefully, is uh, this picture of Sukkot in the modern day, kind of four pictures here of how they celebrate celebrate Sukkot today. And Sukkot is what th that, th that word, uh, tabernacle, it actually is the word uh, booth or tent is the meaning of it. And it's also known as the feast of ingathering elsewhere in scripture. So Deuteronomy 23 kind of gives us our longest description of the feast. It's also mentioned in Deuteronomy 16. And then in Exodus 23, it's mentioned as one of the three pilgrim festivals, which will be important here in a second. So look at verse number 39 of Leviticus chapter number 23. Are you there? Um, it says, Also, in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, there's the ingathering part, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the bows of goodly tree branches, uh, of, of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the bows of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Okay, and you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generation. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. 
Okay, so, so he says every year you're going to go down and you're going to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. And you're going to grab these trees and you're going to ingather all the crops. And then he says this in verse 42. Ye shall dwell in booths. There's that word, sukkah, the, the, the Sukkot. You shall dwell in the booths seven days. All that are in Israel born shall dwell in booths. You say, that's a strange thing. Why are they going to dwell in these tents? Well, he tells you, verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So here's the thing. Every single one of the feasts that, that, that God gave his people in, in the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy, all those feasts are connected to a past event that helps the people continually remember what God has done for them in the past. So in this particular feast, the feast of Sukkot, they are going to dwell in these tents to remind themselves that when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, God's sustained them, that God brought them out of Egypt and he caused them to dwell in these, these, these booths. And so now in Israel today, they still celebrate this. They, they put up these man-made structures on their balconies, in their courtyards, uh, on the rooftops, and they cover them with these branches, uh, these palm branches. And it, it's, it's to remind them of their ancestors who, who were provided uh, life and nourishment in the wilderness as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. And, 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 and Exodus 23 comes along and says that, that, this, that this festival, Sukkot, along with Passover and Pentecost, are going to be ones that you need to journey to Jerusalem to celebrate. So the other festivals you can do in your own cities, but these three festivals, Sukkot included, you need to travel, journey from where you live to Jerusalem to celebrate, which is why the brethren of Jesus are saying, you got to get down to Jerusalem. We all are going down to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And so, so note, the feast was connected to a past event, but it was also connected to a present reality because they are gathering in the crops at this time of the year. And so not only are, the re, are they remembering what God did for them in the past, but they're also very aware that the crops that they've gathered in, they're giving thanks to the Lord that he he has provided for them in their current day. He provided for their ancestors and he is still providing for them now. And so it came with this past reality, this past event, this current reality, but it also came with a plea for the future. Okay, it came for this, this plea that God would provide for them in the future as well. So uh, in Israel, water is important. In fact, in everywhere, water is important. Like water is life. I had to learn the hard way. You can't live off Mountain Dew as much as I wish you could. I used to convince my parents it was 90% orange juice, you know, and so you got to let me drink Mountain Dew. In fact, I used to drink Mountain Dew on the sidelines in basketball games until I crashed one day during a basketball game. I had to be carried to the sideline, and my coaches scolded me when they found out I had put Mountain Dew in the Gatorade bottle, right? Uh, yeah, uh, you can't have Mountain Dew on the sideline. You got to drink some water, Eric, okay? You can't be caffeinated that much, okay? And so, so water is life. And in Israel, in ancient Israel especially, water was extremely scarce and hard to come by. So we're going to throw up a map of, of Israel here. And, and this map has the bodies of water. And you're like, man, there's, there's a ton of water in Israel. Well, this big body of water on the, on the 
west here is the Mediterranean Sea. It's an ocean. It's, 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 uh, it's um, uh, salt water, not usable to drink, cook with. You can't use that water. And then this body of water up here in the north is a fresh body of water. It's, a, it's the Sea of Galilee, okay? But, but when you think of Sea of Galilee, you really got to think lake because it's, it's only seven miles uh, long or wide, 14 and a half miles long, uh, pretty, pretty small lake, has enough water for the Galilean region, but certainly not enough for where Jerusalem is here and the southern part of Israel. And so then you've got this big body of water here, but this is the Dead Sea. And it's called dead for a reason. Its, it's, it's salt contents are through the roof. It's so, it's so full of salt, you can pay to float in it, okay? And, so, and then you've got this Jordan River that kind of connect the two. But the Jordan River is not a Tigris River. It's not a Euphrates. It, it, it's a very small river in comparison. It does not have enough water to sustain the whole land, especially the southern region of Jerusalem. And so they began to realize that they had to do... Um, well, they had to be clever about how they used their water. Because on top of the fact that their water is scarce on the land, the water coming from the sky is also pretty scarce in Israel. Like in Israel, they got two seasons, all right? They got a, they got a dry season and they got a rainy season. You got that slide up there. I think there's one that says uh, they got from, from mid-April to mid-October, or from mid, mid-October to mid-April, it is the, the rainy season. And then from mid-April to mid-October, there's the dry season, all right? They're kind of like where I live in Yuma. We've got two seasons as well, hot and hotter, okay? And uh, so we've got those two seasons. And I guess in the Midwest, you've got uh, cold and construction, right? That kind of seems to be the two seasons you've got. So you've got the rainy season and the dry season in Israel. And so they'll get 28 inches of rain in Israel all in those first six months. And then after that, they'll get hardly anything at all. It'll be bone dry. In fact, as I was uh, uh, standing in the back and people were greeting me after the end of the first service, he said, uh, there was a guy that came up and said, I've been to Israel. My tour guide said that there's no phrase in Israel that says, uh, rain, rain, go away. <laughs> he says, no, no, no. We, the, he said, the tour guide said, we always want the rain. We always want the rain to fall because they, they, they would get so little of it. And so they, 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 they began to realize that during the rainy season, they've got the six months where it rains, 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 rains. They've got plenty of water, but then they've got the season where it doesn't rain and they've got no water. And so they had to become strategic about how they gathered the rain. And so they built cisterns, okay? And so this is the cistern at Arad, which is one of those southern cities in Israel. And Arad, this, this particular cistern dates all the way back to the early Bronze Age, Thank over 4,000 years ago, okay? This is a, a long time ago. And this cistern is huge. Like, those are real people looking down into it, okay? This is not just some little tiny well. This is, this is big. And this one's empty because it's ancient. But the idea is that as the rain would fall those first six months, you'd be left with full, a full cistern, right? And then you'd have this rainy, you'd have this dry season where you'd have to rely on the, the water collected by the cistern to sustain you. And so every day they would go down during the dry season and they'd gather the water they need for their week or their day. And they would go back home and they'd use it. And when they were done, they'd go back to the cistern. But you got to think, as the time goes on in that dry season, that cistern gets more and more empty, right? And so by the end of the dry season, that cistern's nearly empty, and they're living on muck and mire, right? Because at the bottom of that cistern, like this is an open air cistern, so they've got, you know, the bird 
things that are falling in, and they got the muck and the mire. Like everything is flowing into this cistern in Arad, and so you can't. It's not all drinkable. They, they've got to. They've, they've got to be scarce about it. And so you say, well, this is all great, but what does this have to do with John seven and Sukkot? Well, we're told that Sukkot in the book of Leviticus is in the fifteenth day of the seventh month. Well, if we track that. We find that Sukkot actually lines up with the last week of the dry season, okay? So this is the driest time of the year, the driest week of the year, and they are now journeying. They're taking a journey to Jerusalem on the driest week of the year. You understand that? So as they're filling up their cisterns, as they're packing their bags and their tents, as they head up to this pilgrimage, they are keenly aware. Like, yeah, God provided for us in the past. And we're certainly thankful God provided for us in the present. But, oh man, do we need God to provide for us in the future. Our cistern's getting empty. We've got to have living water fall again. We've got to have living water fall. So the Sukkot festival became this big party and celebration about how God led them through the wilderness. And they've got all these light festivals because God led them as a pillar of fire. And so they've got all these, these, these torch ceremonies. It's beautiful. And people say, you've got to see it. It'll bring you the most joy you've ever had in your life. And so I am still running empty on the most joy I've ever had in my life because I've never seen it. But they, they, what I've heard is that it's just this miraculous thing in the evenings. They just celebrate and they party and they eat and they feast. And then in the mornings, in the wee hours of the mornings, those who are truly dedicated and serious will journey up to the temple and they will, they, they will commence what's called the Maim Kahim Hachim, which is the living water ceremony. And so we've got a map of uh, uh, ancient Jerusalem here that's constructed, the black and white one. And uh, up there in the top, we're going to highlight it in blue, that's the temple. And then down here is the Pool of Siloam. And this Pool of Siloam is um, it's a spring-fed pool that is fed by the Gihon Spring, which lies over here. And so the Gihon Spring, uh, we're told uh, a couple years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great tunneled in to the Pool of Siloam to, so that it would fill up as like a community hot spot. And so uh, this is this Pool of Siloam. It shows up again in John chapter 9. But, uh, but this is a model and this temple's there. The Pool of Siloam is here. And so every morning during the Sukkot festival, a priest would come out of the temple for the morning sacrifice and he would bring out a golden pitcher with him and he would be led by this procession down to the pool of Siloam. I think we've got the path highlighted there. And he's going to come down to this pool of Siloam and he's going to walk down the steps and he's going to fill up the golden pitcher and he's going to be led all the way back up into the temple. It's about a 10 minute walk. He's going to get back into the temple and he's going to lift up the golden picture as the crowd is going to go silent and he's going to pour that water over this uh, burning sacrifice that will then create the smoke throughout the temple and there will be this, this, this cause of celebration. And the whole idea is that they have living water because of the Gihon Spring, but it's not enough water for everyone. And so they are there, they are, they are with their morning sacrifice saying, God, 
We need more living water. We need rain to fall again. And their belief became that when Sukkot ended, well, that was when the living water began, right? And so, so, so they, they began to realize, like, there's something to this. So as we, as we remind ourselves what God did in the past, and, and, we, and we praise God for what he's done in the present, and we also plea for God to answer in the future, well, then he answers us. And so they connected it to this, the, the ceremony that they were doing every day at Sukkot. This priest goes down, fills up the pitcher, comes back up, and pours the water out. And he does it for the first six days of the festival. But on the seventh day, they do something different. So the seventh day was the last day of the festival. They called it Hoshana Rabbah. It was the last and great day of saving. So Hoshana is where we get our word Hosanna, which means save us. And then Rabbah means day. So this is the great saving day. The day of great saving. And this is modern day Sukkot, Hoshana, Rabbah. And you'll see that they're bringing their, their uh, uh, palm branches and, and these bows and, and these, these goodly trees and, and some of the, the fruit that's mentioned there. And this is at the Welling Wall because there's no temple in Jerusalem right now. And, and they gather in the courtyard with all this stuff, and the priest comes out. And like, maybe you missed one of the ceremonies the days before, right? You, you party too hard the night before, you, you drank too much, so you slept it. You missed the early morning ceremony. But on the seventh day, on Hoshana Rabbah, everybody that was at the festival goes to the temple for the Maim Kahim Hahim, the living water ceremony. Because this day was different. And so, so they get there, and the priest comes out with this picture, and they all start praising God. That we're, we're, we're told they would have been uh, crying out uh, different psalms that talk about God being their savior. And Psalms 118.25 is one of them when he says, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, sin now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, for we have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And perhaps they would be crying out verses like uh, 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 the, the prophecy in Isaiah that says he will draw out water from the wells and pour down upon us. And so they're, they're crying out these things. And, and he comes out with that golden pitcher, and he walks all the way down to the pool of Siloam with this, the, 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 this processional and these people lining his pathway. And he walks down those steps, and he would dip the pitcher in the pool of Siloam as he would uh, the, the other days. And he would pull it back out, and he'd walk back up into the temple, and he would lift up the pitcher, and the crowd would go silent. And when he went to pour out the water, there would be no water. Oh, the crowd would begin to cry louder. And they would begin to shake their, their, their tree branches as if to mimic thunder. Like we've got to have the sound of living water come to us. And so they would begin to cry out louder. And they would begin to, to, to cry out more. And, and the priests would go back down to the pool of Siloam a second time. Again, a 10-minute walk, right? And he goes down into that pool, pulls the, the pitcher down into it, walks back up to the temple. Again, lifts up the pitcher, silence, and pours out nothing. Well, he does it a third time, and a fourth time, 
And if that's not, now, if you've been coming to Sukkot year after year, you know what's going on. They do this all the, every year, but you're not playing any differently. No, no, no. You're still shaking the branches more fervently each time he goes down. You're still crying out the Psalms. You're, 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 you're still asking God that to send you living water. We desperately need water in our land. And so, so you, you're still shouting and you're still doing all of it. And he goes down a fifth time and a sixth time and he comes back up on the sixth time with that picture raised and the crowd's silent and he goes to pour it out but there's nothing there but then the seventh time happens and the seventh time everyone knows what's going on now and so now they put all their weight into it you say well, what's significant about the seventh time well there's seven days to the to the festival, but also there were seven days that Joshua walked his army around the walls, and on the seventh day, he walked around seven times, and on that seventh time, when they blew the horn, the walls came down, so that this is a, this is a symbolic number here, like everyone knows what's going on, he takes that picture down, and everyone's making sure the priests know, this is the seventh time, make sure you do it right, okay, buddy, don't mess it up, you know, and they're crying out loud, and they're, they're putting every energy they got into shaking those branches and that priest goes down to the pool of Siloam and he fills that pitcher up to the brim and when he pulls it up out of the water everybody at the pool is like he's got water everybody up to the temple we don't want to miss it and they're pushing people out of the way to get a spot to see this thing take place and they're crying out to their God and the Bible says that the and the history tells us that these priests would lift up that golden pitcher and the crowd would, would go silent and he would pour that water over the sacrifice. And the crowd would erupt into this ruckus of noise. With that in mind, look at verse number 37 again of John chapter 7, where the Bible says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Hoshana Rabbah, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You tell me Jesus doesn't have a fill for the theatrics here in this passage of scripture. Oh man, this is the most pertinent image at the most pertinent week on the most relevant day of the most relevant moment that he could do it, right? And Jesus, Jesus has been there the whole time, right? In fact, he came up in private. He began to teach openly and we didn't get into the debates of the teaching of, the, uh, of what Jesus is trying to do, but the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to, to condemn Jesus. They're, they're saying, how can you be the Messiah when you're from Galilee? You don't even know prophecy. He's supposed to be from Bethlehem. And it's this misunderstanding that Jesus Jesus isn't from Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem, but no one really knows that, I guess. And so, so this all this, this, mis, this conjecture, and they're denying him, and, and, and people are saying, no, he's the Messiah. We've seen the signs. We've seen the wonders. And the Pharisees and the scribes said, absolutely not. There's no way this guy's the Messiah. And then they come to this temple, and Jesus is there on Hoshana Rabbah, and he sees these people cry out, Lord, send us something to save us. God, we, we are dry. God, we're dehydrated. God, we are depressed. We are thirsty. We are dying. Lord, send us your living water. Send us something to, to sustain us and satisfy us and fill us. Lord, we've got to have living water to save our lives. And Jesus looks at that pitcher be filled up with water over and over and over again. And on that seventh time, he comes up and the crowd is shaking it. He hears
hears the cries of the people asking the Lord to send them a Savior. And as they lift up that golden pitcher and the crowd goes silent, Jesus can't say silent any longer. And so he cries out, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Whoa. Jesus says, you're missing it, my friend. You are pleading for God to fill you and give you something for your dry and dehydrated life. And I'm right here. Now, this phrase that Jesus uses, living water. It's that word, maim kahim, living water. It's only found two times in the entire Old Testament. Maim kahim, and they're both in the prophet Jeremiah, which is this really sad book, right? And it's disjointed, and yet they've got this festival where they talk about living water, and everyone talks about maim kahim the whole week. They definitely would have been thinking about the two verses in their Bible that talk about living water. And the first one is in Jeremiah chapter number two, and it's really God condemning his people for their sins. But he's doing so through imagery and parable and picture image. And he says this in verse number 13. He says, my people have committed two evils against me. They have, like he's summing up their charge. He says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn themselves out cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, this is the problem. This is why my people are dry and dehydrated. This is why my people are dying. This is why judgment is coming upon them. This is why their works are evil. Because instead of drinking from the springs of living water that was given to them, that was poured out for them, they've been settling on the broken cisterns. They've been settling on the things that, that, that try to contain the living water, and they don't even hold it. It's broken. It seeps out. They're living off the muck and the mire of dry, dirty water, and they're trying to get satisfaction out of it. And he says it's all just left them empty and void because they have forsaken living water. And Jesus says you are no different than the people in Jeremiah's day. You're relying on the ceremony and on the temple to bring you satisfaction and to bring you uh, power and to bring you the, 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 the way of livelihood that you crave. And he said, you're rejecting the fountain of living water that has come before you. And so he says, listen, if you're dry and you're thirsty, then come to me and drink. Because when you believe on me, well, as the scriptures say, out of your belly... It's going to flow living water. Now listen, all this is great, but what does this have to do with us, right? Well, here's the thing. John, who, who wrote this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was there that day at Sukkot. But he wasn't there with a pen and paper writing it all down as it happened verbatim. 
In fact, scholars tell us that, that John probably wrote his gospel towards the end of his life. He's one of the last ones to write the gospels, and, and, and he's, he's nearing death. He's being persecuted, and he's also been this, this monumental leader in the church in Asia Minor, that, that it's been exploded, and it's got Jews, and it's got Gentiles, and Rome is persecuting this church. Rome, Rome is putting this church to death. In fact, Rome is the one that has exiled John and boiled him alive to live the rest of his life on an island, right? And so John is trying to write a word of encouragement. He's writing this gospel of what Jesus has done to, to help his people, right? Like be reminded of Jesus's life and story. And so he's, he's writing it to them and he's using these things like, well, the world can't hate you because it's hated me because I'm testifying of their evil. So he, he's writing a Jesus that they can relate to, they can identify with. He's being persecuted. He's being, he's being put to death, right? Like John's writing this out. Remember his story. And the people that are hearing it, like death is, in, is coming. Persecution is everywhere, right? Like they're facing it in real life. John has seen many of the other disciples he followed Jesus with be put to death already. And he's watching this unfold. And he's writing this word of encouragement. Like Jesus says, if you're thirsty, if you're needy, come to him and he will fill you up. He will be that living water for you. All the people are like, yeah, that's great. But Jesus is long gone. They killed him too. And so John wants his audience to know what Jesus was talking about that day in John chapter 7. And so he puts in the next verse a parenthesis. Like he's going to let you in. This is what Jesus was talking about. So look at verse number 39. It says, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So John says, listen, I want you to understand what Jesus is pronouncing himself to be is the source of living water, the source of the spirit of God that can be put inside of you and it can enable and equip you. Now, the Spirit of God is not a new thing that Jesus is announcing. The Spirit of God has been around from the very beginning. In the Greek, it's the word pneuma. In the Hebrew, it's the word ruach. And it shows up in verse number two of Genesis chapter number one, when the earth is formless and void. And the Bible says the Spirit hovered over the waters. And it's out of the Spirit of God that new life speaks, right? That God's voice shouts out. Out. And it's the Spirit of God that is constantly working in this world, even after sin, even after Adam and Eve. Like out of that Garden of Eden flowed these rivers of water. And everywhere those rivers went, life popped up. Uh, communities thrived. And, and it's the Spirit of God that shows up all throughout the Old Testament. It shows up in the book of Joshua as Joshua is filled with the Spirit of God and filled with the Spirit of wisdom to lead the people. It shows up with Moses, who's anointed by the Spirit of God. As they build the tabernacle, there are certain men who are anointed by the Spirit of God. It shows up a bunch when we come to the prophets, because these prophets get filled up with the Spirit of God, and they have this vision of the Lord, and Elijah sees, and Elijah sees fire fall from heaven. Ezekiel sees dry bones come to life, all by the quickening of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God's not a new concept that John is revealing 
to them. It's an old concept that's, that, that, that he's revealing to them, but one that had been dormant for about 400 years until Jesus stepped onto the scene. And now when Jesus steps on the scene, well, suddenly the Spirit of God seems to be everywhere because demons are fleeing at the name of Jesus. Blind men can see at the name of Jesus. Lame people can walk at the name of Jesus. Dead men are rising to life at the name of Jesus. Like this is a man who is walking out the Spirit of God. In fact, isn't that what Jesus reads when he goes into his synagogue in Nazareth and he opens the scroll and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Whoa. And so Jesus is saying, I am filled with the Spirit. And when you believe on me, when you come to me and you believe in my death, my burial, my resurrection, when you believe on what I, have, what I am doing in this world, well, he says, guess what? When you believe on me, as the scriptures say, that spirit of God now lives in you. It now resides in your heart. It now, it now fills and equips you. And so, so when you trust in Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, you get the spirit of God. You get God's spirit to dwell in you. Like, I don't think we realize how big of a deal that is. In fact, Paul comes on the scene. He says, listen, I, I need you to know this. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in you. It's available to you. This is power that lives in you. You know what? We can come to church and it's almost like we got this, this, this feeling. Like when we come to church, we, we come to church to get filled with the spirit. Like we, we come to church and we're like expecting the spirit to seep through the walls, you know? Like when the preaching gets hot, that's when the spirit shows up. And like, you're like, oh yeah, the spirit's here today. I can feel it burning in my thighs. Ooh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, you know? It's like, I don't know. Here, you want to know the truth? The only time this building ever gets the Spirit of God is when you come in filled up with the Spirit of God. Amen. Listen, the Spirit of God's not in a temple anymore. The Spirit of God doesn't fill the Holy of Holies anymore. That is all in the past. Hebrews tells us we've got a better version of that. We've got God in the flesh. Jesus came down to live amongst us. He was our high priest. He was our king. He was the prophet of old that came, lived out the Spirit, was crucified. And now through his death, burial, and resurrection, through faith, that Spirit of God quickens you to salvation. But then it empowers you to Christian living. And you now have the Spirit of God in you. The veil has been torn in two. That's why you can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because the one who sits on the throne is in you. So yeah, you approach that throne with authority. And yes, you call on God like he's your father because he resides in your heart. The Holy Spirit of God is in us. Now here's the thing. We can quench the spirit we can grieve the Spirit. We can refuse to yield to the Spirit. And so Paul tells us, well, you've got to not be drunk with wine, where's an excess, but you must be filled with the Spirit. He says, listen, you've got to drown out those things that quench the Spirit. You've got to put away those things that grieve Him in your life. And you've got to yield to the Spirit to bear fruit in your life. So, so much I think is like, well, I don't feel like I've got the Spirit of God. Listen, feeling comes with believing. 
So when you know that the Spirit dwells in you, now can come the feeling of the Spirit. You say, well, how will I know that the Spirit is, is like pouring out of me? Well, am I going to start speaking in tongues? Well, maybe. But I think, I think more importantly than that, you're not gonna, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be like the, the signs and the wonders. No, no, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, gentleness, right? Against such there is no law. This is the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to yield in your life. This is the working of the Spirit that God wants to yield in your life. And so listen, the church today desperately needs the Spirit of God. We desperately need people who, who will recognize they've got the Spirit. And so we can't really do church without the Spirit. We can't do church in our flesh. No, we, we can't win our, 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 our neighborhood to Christ without the Spirit of God. We, we can't reach the Quad Cities without the Spirit of God. Like the church desperately needs the Spirit of God. But we also got to realize our world desperately needs the Spirit of God. Here's the thing. You think you can break addiction without the Spirit of God? You, you, you think chains can truly be set free without the Spirit of God? You, you think you're going to be able to walk in the freedom of, of, of purity without the Spirit of God? It's not going to happen. You've got to have the Spirit of God. And Jesus is proclaiming that day where you get the Spirit of God. You get it through belief on Jesus Christ. When you believe on Jesus, the Spirit of God, he says, listen, I am that source of the cool, refreshing presence of God that comes in you and dwells inside you and it, re it rehydrates your dry and thirsty soul. It brings satisfaction to your dehydration. It, it, it brings life to your dead, dry bones. I'm that Spirit of God that gets in you and does something new in you and transforms you. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do in you. So he says, man, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. But I want you to notice this. The whole Bible, the whole Bible is trying to get us to understand we desperately need Jesus. The whole Bible is trying to get us to understand we desperately need Jesus because it's through Jesus we get access to the Father and we get the imprint of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that's not just the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is not just that you need it. The message of Scripture is that our world desperately needs Jesus and the Spirit of God as well. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, when you believe on me, well, as the Scripture says, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. In other words, it doesn't just flow to you. It flows to you so that it might flow out of you. It might flow into your workplace and into your home and into your children and into your communities. Like we need the spirit of God to flow to us and we need the spirit of God to flow from us if we're ever going to make a difference in our world. And so man, if you're thirsty, Revelations 22 says, come, come, man, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him that hear us say, come, let him that is a thirst, come. And let him take of the water of life freely. It is available to you through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you.